Our second reading comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through chapter 17, verse 8. This is Jesus' transfiguration and what happens leading up to that. So listen for a word from God. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will set up three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the clouds said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you are Jesus Christ, who illumines all things. We pray this all in your name. Amen. There is something about the transfiguration that is so dazzling, so fascinating. There are a few stories like it in the Bible. It draws us in through this otherworldly scene that's both terrifying and exciting. It's both thrilling and assuring. It feels like there is something new happening, and that's because there is. What the disciples are having is a revelation, a new understanding of who Jesus Christ is in the world, of who God is in the world. Jesus' transfiguration is a revelation for a deeper understanding of who he is. And that scene in the parallel that's drawn between him and Moses, Moses of the Old Testament. If you recall, Moses had that great privilege to see God. 
And when Moses got to see God, when he came down his mountain, his face shone like the sun. Again, we have this parallel where the same descriptor is used. Jesus' face shone like the sun. Jesus is becoming the new Moses in the eyes of the disciples. But who was Moses to the Israelites? Who was Moses to the disciples? Well, Moses was a leader, a liberator. He was one who helped to lead the Israelites out of bondage and slavery and into the promised land. He occupied that special role of prophet, priest, and king. So too, Jesus is our Moses, our prophet, one who speaks for God, our priest who talks to God for us, and our king who rules over our lives. Jesus is our new Moses in that he is consistently leading us out of the bondage of brokenness, the chains of self-reliance, the bonds of individualism and self-doubt. Jesus guides us to the kingdom of God, the promised land where we may flourish as full believers. The revelation that Jesus is guiding us towards in eternity can be terrifying because just as the Israelites traveled through the desert, so we must journey through the wilderness. The wilderness of golden calves that we worship, the wilderness where we complain, the wilderness where sometimes we wish to return to our former slavery and bondage. But Jesus is calling us to take up our crosses, which means to walk the pathway of death and humiliation to the hope of resurrection. Jesus Christ beckons us forth out of the cracked, water-starved grounds into the oasis of the presence of God. But what is transfiguration? It's not a word we used often. The Greek word for it is metamorphotheia, which is where we get our word metamorphosis from. It is a change, a change in perception, a change in understanding, a deeper understanding of who Jesus has called us to be. It's a change in perception. One of the people that illustrated this so beautifully for me was one time Allie and I were walking through the Van Gogh Museum and you walk kind of in a circle and you get to see the different epochs of his life as an artist. And at the very end of his life is really where he reached his full ability and there's masterpiece after masterpiece. And one of the masterpieces is called The Wheat Field and the Reaper. And in this painting, you see the swirling wheat field that surrounds the reaper that goes into the sky. It's a gorgeous scene. And you wouldn't know from looking at it, but where Van Gogh got the inspiration for that field from that scene was from the walls and the window of the psychiatric hospital that he was locked in. He was stuck in his room where there were bars on the window. And it was through those bars that he saw the wheat field. 
And so what he did was he edited out the bars in the scene. He edited out the bars of bondage to bring into the world something beautiful and delightful. He found something deeper than what was right in front of him. The reality is our understanding of who Jesus is should not remain stagnant our whole lives. There's always something deeper to uncover, something deeper to look upon than what is just on the surface. Our understanding of who Jesus is is both complex and simple. For example, it's simple to state that we love a child, be it our own or a niece or a nephew. It's simple to say that, and it's true. We love them. But to live with them every day, to watch them grow in their own complexity, to experience discovery, there's a metamorphosis of that love. It becomes something deeper, something new. It extends The fact of our initial love does not change. The love of first meeting is not extinguished, but our understanding evolves and grows. So too, our love and understanding of Jesus Christ can evolve and grow. We know on the surface from what we've been taught in Sunday school that Jesus Christ is love incarnate, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he meets us where we are, We know that Jesus has saved, and we can hold these truths, but there's so much more to discover. In this short passage alone, we learn so many different aspects about Jesus. Through his shining face and the parallel to Moses, that he is rescuer and saver. We learn through the bright clouds that Jesus' power and glory are primeval and incomprehensible and even terrifying. We learn through Jesus' words and actions where he tenderly touches his scared disciples, telling them to rise and to not be afraid that Jesus is compassionate, that he resides with us in our fearful moments that he beckons us to return down the mountain into our calls into the world. We have not entirely figured out Jesus Christ, and thanks be to God for that. Jesus Christ will continue leading us on a journey of discovery of love and grace deeper than we even imagined, a deeper understanding of our call in the world. But Jesus does not sugarcoat our call. In the first part of the passage, he makes the dramatic call that for anyone to follow him, they must take up their crosses and follow him. Now, this is a line that I use often in my life, but usually ironically, right? I say it all the time. Whenever Allie and I are getting ready to go somewhere and I can't find the keys because I didn't put them on the hook, I say, this is my cross to bear. Or when I inevitably trip on any small rise on the ground because I don't pick up my feet, that too is my cross to bear. But I think the reason that I make light of that saying, why I use it in ironic sense, is because it's utterly terrifying if we look at the heart of it. To deny myself is something I hate to do. 
I love to engage the lie that the world tells us that whatever feels good is best. But we must accept the reality that we must deny ourselves in order to follow God, to where God is calling us to be. Now, we can't go through this passage without acknowledging some history in the church that this call to pick up our crosses, to deny ourselves, has been used by people in power to subjugate others. That slaveholders used it on their slaves. That abusive partners have used it on their partners to keep them subjugated. That even the church is guilty of telling people to deny themselves so the church can take advantage of them. But the reality is that this passage is calling to deny ourselves not for any human other than the human and God of Jesus Christ. That is who we are called to follow. That is who we are called to deny ourselves for. And Jesus Christ is going to call us to serve, to serve others, to deny ourselves more so that others can have more, so that those who have less can have dignity, can have enough to survive, can have enough to thrive. And when Jesus calls us to do these things, it can be terrifying and scary. But at each moment of fear, we have Jesus who remains, Jesus who stays who puts his hand on our shoulder and gently holding us as we have fallen down in the turmoil of the winds and the storms, who is whispering, get up and do not be afraid, for I love you and I am with you. Jesus does not call us to deny ourselves alone to take up our crosses alone. Jesus Christ will be present. Jesus Christ will be present as liberator and lover, the God who is full of both awesome power and gentle whispers. Jesus Christ who beckons the whole of the church to deny itself so that we can make room for serving Jesus. So let us become less so Christ can become more. May we become less so that we can discover new meanings of who Christ is, new realities of Christ's love and grace in the world, deeper and fuller truths, following where Christ is leading us into the kingdom of God, into the promised land. Alleluia. Amen.